to Cannabis in Focus, the show that brings you solid, practical information about medical cannabis to help you decide for yourself if it could be what you need. We aim to correct the misinformation of the past 70 years with science. Our guests include respected medical doctors, scientists, producers, and patients whose clinical experience, research, and wisdom will help you use this healing plant with confidence. I'm your host, Miriam Knight, and today's guest is Dr. Michelle Sexton. She graduated Bastyr University in 2008 as a naturopathic physician and received fellowships to study the effects of cannabis on multiple sclerosis at the University of Washington's Departments of Pharmacology and Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She's an internationally recognized scientist whose research projects have focused on cannabis for pediatric patients and a cannabis use survey. She is the co-author of the Cannabis Use Survey, Confessions, Insights, and Opinions. Welcome, Dr. Michelle Sexton. Thank you for having me today. Now, this Cannabis Use Survey that you published sounds absolutely fascinating. I understand that it covered over 1,300 responses, and I see that it is still ongoing at CannabisSurvey.org. Please tell us about it. Correct. It is an ongoing survey, and for participants to be included, all you have to do is confess to having used cannabis in the previous 90 days, and then you will enter the survey and be taken through a series of questions where we're collecting information on frequency of use, type of use, type of products that are used, medical conditions used for effects, experiences uh, withdrawal, and beliefs surrounding addiction, as well as practices around um, driving in cannabis. Mm -hmm. So to date, we have collected about 2,500 responses, so it gives us a really nice data set for analysis, and we've published a number of papers um, from this data set and have more in the works. It's just so important to have real hard data that can be uh, relied on to provide information. What were uh, some of the findings, but were there any that surprised you? think it's been too terribly surprising yet. Um, I, don't, I don't know that many people would consider this hard data because it is observational. It's, um, you know, it's, it's patient reported and often that's considered to be biased or that the, the person reporting it could report incorrectly. Um, but it is still data nevertheless um, gained from people who are experienced users. So, of course, it's not representing people who may have tried cannabis and discontinued, but it does represent people that tried cannabis and who have continued to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one thing that we published recently was uh, reports on how frequently people might be substituting cannabis for other prescription drugs. And we found that um, people who identified themselves 
primarily as being a medical user of cannabis as opposed to just an adult or recreational user uh, was that 46% of all people, whether which type of user they were, uh, admitted to substituting cannabis for another drug. And if they were medical users, uh, they averaged about two drugs per person. Uh, they were five times more likely to substitute a prescription drug if they were a medical user. And that uh, women were a, a bit more likely to be substituting than, than men. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know that any of that was really surprising. Um, it was a little surprising, I guess, to learn that people were doing this regardless of whether they lived in a state where medical cannabis was legal or not. They didn't seem to influence their decision-making about using cannabis or substituting it. Mm -hmm. What initially piqued your interest in cannabis? You've obviously had this since you were a, uh, a student. Well, yeah, I had gotten involved in research when I did my undergraduate degree. I was uh, researching active ingredients in plants, what, what made plants medicine and learning about the interaction of these compounds in plants that we call secondary metabolites with human biology and how they modified human biology and affected health and could be advantageous and, and medicine. You know, we have, we have the details about plants of, of what makes them a medicine. Um, and then when I got to my graduate program or the doctoral program in naturopathic medicine at Bastyr, I wanted to continue in research. Um, and I really just serendipitously came upon uh, this laboratory at the University of Washington that was studying the endocannabinoid system. I had been looking at another protein that was upregulated in neuroinflammation and sent Dr. Stella, uh, Dr. Nephi Stella, an email about growing a particular type of cells that are in the brain that are a glia cell and just ended up um, working in his lab thereafter as a pre-doctoral student and then as a postdoctoral student and uh, eventually shifted my interest over to studying the uh, cannabinoid 2 receptor and its, its role in neuroinflammation. So wasn't something I really originally set out to do, but in the process of learning so much about the pharmacology of the plant cannabinoids, the pharmacology of the endogenous cannabinoid system, um, it was just a natural extension into my medical practice. And in 2010, naturopathic doctors were enabled to recommend cannabis to patients in Washington State. And so my quote-unquote research just continued out into my um, patient population and that's where it all began. Now as a naturopath you can both prescribe conventional drugs as well as now cannabis and natural remedies and dietary changes I suppose. So how do you decide when to use what? Oh, that's a, that's a pretty good, tricky question. <laughs> um, you know, it depends on where a naturopathic doctor is practicing, number one, you know, in, in terms of what our um, prescriptive authorities are. Um, 
in California, I don't have the authority to recommend cannabis to patients, but it is now, of course, available to anyone. So if people want to use it medicinally, I can offer education and advice on that. Could you, so, let's back up a moment. Okay. In, in Washington, you can prescribe it, but in California, you cannot as a doctor? Correct. So the, so the term prescribed doesn't actually apply because it's not a drug, you know, that you write a prescription for. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just been called um, a recommendation or mm-hmm. um, you know, a suggestion, I guess, that because it's schedule one, you know, doctors just had to say to patients, I think this might help you. <laughs> Get creative, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it was formalized by, you know, signing a form in Washington right. State and, and in California until recently. And, and we do still use that, um, that here in California because patients can get a, a tax break at the retail level if they go through the formal process of identifying themselves as a patient and getting a a card. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's still a benefit. Um, I think that some patients, you know, just feel more comfortable to do it in a a doctor-directed fashion. So a lot of my patient population are being referred to me from their medical doctors or, you know, referred from another source. And they're specifically coming, seeking information about cannabis. So uh, it's not always me making the decision to use the cannabis. They've actively come seeking information. And, you know, they can, they can access it whether I say they should or not. So, you know, it's just in the best interest mm-hmm. of the patient to educate them about how to use it. And in, in the naturopathic um, context... They don't walk out of my office um, with that as the only information that they get about their health care. And, and they'll be instructed on other means of, uh, in, you know, reducing their risk factors for disease or actively treating any ongoing disease processes that they, that they have from a naturopathic perspective. That's so important because we are always looking for the magic bullet and the easy way to cure a particular problem instead of taking responsibility for the whole picture of our health. I think it's true. And unfortunately, I think that many people are thinking that cannabis is somehow that magic bullet. So that's that's why I really like to use it in the context of a a more complete, you know, approach to the whole person. Mm-hmm. What conditions have you had the most success with in using cannabis? Um, I would say epilepsy and pain. Mm-hmm. You know, and pain's pretty broad, so it could cover <laughs> a lot of different diagnoses. Um, neuropathic pain is is probably the majority of my patient population and you know in terms of what is the cause of that it's it's just widely variable it could be a disease process such as multiple sclerosis Um, it could be autoimmune disorder such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis degenerative changes osteoarthritis injuries nerve injuries from surgeries people have Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. ongoing pain from 
you know, hip replacements, knee replacements, back surgeries, laminectomies. Um, yeah, the list goes on. Now, am I correct in, in understanding that opioids are less or ineffective with neuropathic pain, less effective than cannabinoids? Um, I don't know that we have data showing that they're less effective. Just as with cannabis, opiates, really any drug, you know, our, our unique biochemical makeup is really going to be the determinant of how we respond to any drug. And so there are people who respond actually quite well to opiates mm-hmm. and, you know, can use them on a long-term basis at a low dose you know, very safely with good pain relief. There are other people who use opiates that don't really get pain relief. They may escalate the dose. Um, and over time, we have evidence that um, there is a condition called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So they may have pain that is actually being perpetuated by the opiate use. And there, I have plenty of patients who try cannabis and it doesn't affect their pain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, again, it's, it's going back to the individual and trying to really work within the context of that individual and their uh, unique makeup. I think that's one of the problems with cannabis as a very young industry and, and really relatively recently available um, above, above the table, um, that we don't have enough clinical um, history to be able to prescribe it reliably. And also there's so much individual variability. How do you deal with um, exploring with your patients what's best for them? Well, it's, it's done partially within the context, you know, of the patient visit and, and doing a very thorough health history and, and intake and, I think, you know, one of the things that we discussed talking about was um, functional medicine, integrative medicine, and from that perspective, looking at the individual through the lens of what we're, what's known as systems biology, where you're really looking at interactions between all the components of a biological system in, instead of how we've really fractionated the human being and send them you know, to specialists in each system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really using that lens to try to bring everything together. um, And and that's what I've tried to do using the endocannabinoid system. So, you know, that's really the starting place is let's review all of these systems so that I can start to get this picture of, you know, the individual's biochemical makeup, maybe look into their genetic makeup and use all of these pieces together to say, how can we best approach this person's health? And in terms of pulling cannabis into that equation, um, the same approach. So I use the, the basic outline of the endocannabinoid system that was first described by a researcher named Vincenzo de Marzo where he described it as a system that provided for us to eat, sleep, relax, forget, and protect. And I've I've kind of developed that in my own way to assess the patient. 
So depending on what their problem list is, you know, are they having difficulty with sleeping? Do they have digestive issues? Do they have nausea, vomiting? Um, are they anxious? Have they had a long running experience with anxiety throughout their life? Um, and, and do they have, you know, inflammation? What's their stress level? So all of these things could play into my eventual development of the treatment protocol with cannabis. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the common wisdom has always been to start with a low dose and go slow. Mm -hmm. And now with many products, um, especially in the regulated markets, they all have to come with quality assurance testing that gives us um, detail about the potency. And so it's not so difficult anymore um, you know, to instruct patients on how to start it with a low dose and increase it to their tolerance. Mm -hmm. And this, this is a model that's been really well fleshed out with the pharmaceutical um, preparation known as Sativex, where mm -hmm. it was uh, used in many trials for multiple sclerosis in such a fashion. So it's a, you know, it's a different model for patients often, especially if they're not familiar with herbal medicine, that it's, it's a self-titration model. And they're the ones that are really in charge of their dose. So self-titration or titration in general means, uh, I guess, starting low and going slow. It, it's <laughs> figuring out what the right dose is for you, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's not uncommon with many drugs. Many drugs are, are used that way where you start at a small dose and you may, it may gradually increase over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the functional medicine component of your practice? Um, that's really, you know, thinking about biochemistry. So, uh, you know, funct functional medicine is, is focusing on optimal function. And if, if we go, if we think about function down at the molecular level, you know, it's biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, really a lot we can learn about biochemistry, not only by what patients may tell us, through their story, but also, you know, measuring things through laboratory analysis. So once, you know, once we hear the patient's story, then we put on our uh, clinical thinking cap and say, you know, what, what could be the biochemical underpinnings of what's going on here and what should we take a look at? You know, what's the thyroid function? What's happening there? Um, is, is this female patient approaching menopause and should we look at you know some of her steroid hormone levels for instance mm -hmm. we can look at metabolites in urine and find out about neurotransmitter function in the periphery so there's there's really a lot that we can do um, to drill down to the individual so how does this connect into homeostasis and the endocannabinoid system well Homeostasis in general, you know, is just uh, a natural process where the body is maintaining this normal, healthy range for things, uh, simplistically, temperature, uh, energy intake and, and expenditure, um, while we're young, growth. So it's, it's like this internal calculation of all these properties of a system um, to keep these internal conditions stable and relatively constant. And we know that the endocannabinoid system uh, is involved in this because we know at a very basic 
uh, molecular level, for instance, with the neuron, that, that it's there to maintain homeostasis of neurotransmitter uh, production and release at the neuronal level. We know it's involved in the homeostasis of the uh, immune system by making sure that once the immune system reacts to take care of an invader, that it goes back down to its set point. So it's, it's really this built-in um, system that's, that's intricately involved, and we know this because the system is in every tissue in the human body, every organ system, on our blood cells, and so it has a similar role across any tissue or system in the body. And cannabinoids from cannabis, um, are they um, supplementary to our internal cannabinoids? Um, can you overload the system with cannabinoids? Um, how do you determine um, what's happening and which cannabinoids to use? So the, the question about um, supplementary, being the supplement, so that's a that's a popular concept, um, and of course, it was it was the foundation of the study that we did at the University of Washington in patients with multiple sclerosis. Our hypothesis was that a patient with multiple sclerosis may have what we might consider a deficiency in the function of their endocannabinoid system. They have an inflammation that's just gone awry. Um, you know, now attacking their myelin sheath. And so by supplementing cannabis, might we be supplementing that endocannabinoid function to help mm -hmm. restore homeostasis? And, mm -hmm. and we, don't, we don't know yet why, um, you know, why the endocannabinoid system would be malfunctioning. It, it's probably occurring, you know, at the genetic level of protein receptors, uh, enzymes that make the endocannabinoids and that type of thing. So that is the basic hypothesis that these um, plant cannabinoids, um, particularly THC, because it, it's, it's the primary compound that's directly um, binding and being a direct activator of a cannabinoid receptor. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of an overload, absolutely. You can overload just like with any drug. Um, the basic pharmacologic concept is, you know, if you have a lot of something roaming around in the body that's supposed to be binding to a receptor, you know, the body has this natural homeostatic process of, oh, well, maybe we don't need that much receptor because there's a lot of that stuff coming around to bind with the receptor so the receptor will get down-regulated. And we know that this occurs uh, in humans that are heavy uh, THC consumers. Um, the interesting thing about this system is that because it's this integral homeostatic system, it, it bounces back really rapidly compared to other systems. Mm -hmm. And so the, the normal homeostatic level of the receptor will come back to normal uh, within days to weeks, and if you compare that to another system, that that's it's pretty fast responder. Well, that's encouraging. Um, there has been a real growth among CBD only products. What's your opinion of them? 
Um, my opinion of those. I think that, you know, there may be a place for them. Um, I think that there's a lot of misinformation about the potential for CBD to totally replace THC that I, uh, that's just not a reality because their pharmacology is entirely different. Um, and so that's not only at the level of the dose, but also, you know, what, what are you wanting to use it for? So specifically, if, if you want to treat pain, THC is a well-known analgesic compound, and we know the mechanism of that through the CB1 receptor. On the other hand, CBD has really never been explored as an analgesic because it never showed those properties when early studies were done with the compound. Um, there's no clinical trial to support CBD as a pain reliever, so that's, that's probably the most uh, common thing that I hear is people even, patients coming into my office even having been told by another doctor that they can use CBD per, for pain. And, you know, I've, I'm a very evidence-based practitioner, and I go to the research to try to find that, and it's just not there. So, you know, what's the dose that you would use for pain, for instance? Mm -hmm. we, we have no idea because it's never been tried for pain in a human. So, I'm, yeah, I'm a little bit of a skeptic because I think that it's not really um, science-driven. I think it's a very market-driven thing that's happening, particularly with CBD now. Mm. And I think aided and abetted by the fact that it, since it is not psychoactive, um, companies think that they can get around the restrictions. Right, and just make um, claims about it that are not founded either in the science or, you know, any real solid experience or proof. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I always say I should have been from Missouri. <laughs> I'm always saying, well, show me. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, people bring me products. Oh, this goes right into the bloodstream. I'm like, show me the data. You know, you can't mm -hmm. just make claims like that. But people are making claims like that all over the place. So to me, it's... Uh, yeah, sometimes yeah. I get annoyed by it, I guess. It sounds like a real scientist to the core. Uh, tell me, um, what forms of cannabis do you recommend to your patients? And for what conditions are they best suited? Well, that's a great question because there's so many products now. There's so many ways to consume cannabis. And this is of course, something that's very confusing to someone who's new. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we go back to our ancient history, uh, we know that humans have used cannabis for thousands and thousands of years for many different things and probably in many different ways that are, are not documented. But we know that one way that people have used cannabis is through inhalation. And it's a beautiful way to experience the whole plant, especially inhaled with, um, you know, a low temperature vaporizer, the, the real true raw plant material itself, not an extract, um, not a concentrate, but with that low uh, temperature vaporization, you can really get the flavor, which means you're, you're experiencing the essential oil component of the plant, which 
is also an entire, entirely different but closely related collection of uh, biochemically active compounds. Um, so this is when you're really getting that synergistic plant effect. So I, I'm a proponent of inhalation. I think that it's rapid um, relief, you know, on the order similar to having an IV. It's just in the system almost immediately. So, you know, for people who are really suffering from either acute pain, migraine, nausea, um, you know, to not have to take something orally and wait for it to take effect um, is a real benefit of the ability to still use the entire cannabis flower. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it also gives you better feedback as to the dosage, I would imagine. Yeah, you, you do get immediate feedback. And so, you know, the trick there is that the cannabis has really increased in potency over the last 10 or 15 years. We know from uh, many different published reports of doing analyses of, of even just the cannabis flower. So the studies uh, around using inhaled cannabis for pain, which is what most of the studies have been, um, the product that's used from the University of Mississippi is an actually pretty low-dose cannabis, 5% five, mm -hmm. 5 content. Mm -hmm. And and that's, I, again, I just, I'm an evidence-based practitioner, so I try to follow, you know, the guidance from those clinical studies. And we have really great success with um, the population of pain patients that I work with using something that mirrors that 5% THC content or less. And, and this is difficult to do. It's getting really difficult to find, um, a, you know, a CBD-dominant type of product. They're all being taken into extraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you did mention the aromatic compound being able to taste the flavor. How important are these terpenes and aromatic compounds to the therapeutic effect, do you think? Um, I think they're really important uh, because, you know, they do have their own biological effects. And this is something that we haven't really began to, you know, drill down in terms of, um, you know, doing trials of it. So it's, it's very observational at this point. Um, but it's also, you know, a synthesis of, of um, art and, and science, I would say, of medicine, where, um, you know, often we can get the terpene profiles of the, fl the flower content. And this is something that will be required in California, they did not require it in Washington State. I'm not sure what has been done in Oregon. But if you go back to, you know, the, the people's pharmacy, so, you know, before uh, 10, 12 years ago, where people walked into a dispensary, they were greeted with large jars of cannabis flour that they could take the lid off of and inhale and have that personal experience in a relationship with the scent. Do, do I like that scent or not? Is that pleasing mm -hmm. to me? <laughs> and, you know, I used to just encourage people to select what was a pleasing scent to them and, you know, trust that part of their biology. Now there's more information, um, you know, on the individual compounds. So we know, for instance, that 
um, myrcene, which is a, a primary terpene that's found in many, many of the chemotypes, um, has been shown to be sedative and pain relieving in mice. We don't have human studies on this yet. Um, but that's where I'm saying we have to kind of take the science and use it in an art of practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that correlating with peop- what people report about those chemotypes, that they are relaxing or aids for sleeping. Um, because if you look at the cannabis flower that's out there, it's really mostly, a, you know, a THC dominant product, but there, there is this variability in the essential or the terpene profile that kind of guides the overall experience that people have with it. Now, what about vape pens? They are a rather more discreet way to consume cannabis. Are they effective or do you have concerns about them? Um, I'm not sure about their effectiveness, and I, I do have concerns about them. Um, for one thing, the concentration. So it's now, it's a concentrate. Um, and so instead of maybe a 15 or 20% THC content, it now may be a 50 to 80% THC content. And we think that there may be sort of a narrow therapeutic window specifically for pain where, um, you know, lower dose is effective at pain relief, but as patients increase in dose, it may actually exacerbate pain similar to how I was talking about the opiates earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And patients have said this for a really long time that they called it a quote unquote sweet spot that they sort of had defined in terms of the dose just to give them the, the pain relief without exacerbating pain. So that's a concern that I have about it for pain that, you know, it may be a bigger dose than what people want um, or can tolerate. And it, it may actually not be the best um, dose for pain. The other thing that concerns me is just how harsh it is. Um, it, that concentrate hits the back of the throat and the lungs. And we really have no, data on, um, you know, the effects of, on the lungs, either in the short or the long term. Uh, if you're not in a state where pesticide testing is required, uh, pesticides are being concentrated, and that makes me very uncomfortable. And I, so, you know, I ask patients not to use the vape pens until, you know, the pesticide testing is in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, this is changing a lot, but, you know, there have been excipients added to make it more pourable. Once the concentrate is made, it can be very thick, and to pour it into the cartridges, they have added things, some of which can also be extremely harmful to health, uh, carcinogenic even. So I ask my patients just to steer clear of these in general. They can be very discreet. They're easy you know, to take along and I just ask if they're going to use it, you know, to minimize it and just be aware that it's, it's very, very concentrated. Well, what about things like tinctures and sublinguals and edibles and even they're coming up with capsules? Yeah. So like I was saying earlier, there's, there's so many products. It's, I think it's confusing to patients. They, they often come in saying, well, I've heard that there's just some drops I can take, and that seems to be appealing to them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I often let patient preference guide, you know, how I educate them to use the cannabis. 
because while I think that inhalation is, is a good idea or a nice way to, to use it as a medicine, many people are averse to the idea of inhaling. So in that case, yes, there are many, many forms to ingest it. Um, even though there are, people claim that if you put it under the tongue, it's more rapid, uh, most of it probably is getting swallowed. And so it's going to be individual in terms of the time of onset. Um, the other thing about, you know, processing the cannabis to make a tincture or to make an oil is, um, you know, what did you lose in that process? So maybe the terpenoids are still there. Are the terpenoids still the same uh, biologic activity when they're ingested versus versus inhaled, we don't know. We do know that the liver metabolizes them. So anytime you ingest, you know, any kind of an herbal product, it's all going through the liver. The liver gets the first pass and the liver's gonna modify uh, what gets released into the bloodstream. So I think that often the, the oral forms are actually just being reduced to the cannabinoid content. And, and then you've sort of lost that whole synergistic effect of the whole plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let's talk about some of the conditions for which you recommend cannabis. For example, a lot of people are having difficulty with insomnia of one form or another. How would you recommend dealing with that? Uh, that's a great topic because, yes, millions of Americans suffer from sleep deprivation, insomnia, poor sleep habits, um, stress that affects their ability to sleep. And so, you know, interestingly, um, specifically THC has, has been studied and been shown to um, delay the period of time it takes someone to fall asleep. I think this is this can be variable because... For some people, THC can make their mind more active <laughs> and keep them awake. Mm-hmm. So I have, unless people already know that it's going to make them fall asleep, I have them take it, you know, as something oral, the very last thing right before they are getting into bed. If they need help falling asleep, I'll use um, other things such as melatonin. Um, but to help them stay asleep, Uh, to treat pain at night. And then there's some evidence showing that um, THC can help uh, with our normal nighttime sleep rhythms, which are usually four to five um, cycles, you know, going into different stages, in and out of different stages of sleep. And that THC was shown to increase the time spent in the most restorative sleep, which was uh, stage four, three and four of sleep. Is there no research regarding CBD in this regard? Uh, no, there's really not. In fact, if you, um, I, I just gave a talk on this um, last week, so I had reviewed all of the, um, the studies and, you know, the research that I could find. And if you go into those research studies, CBD is referred to as a compound that is alerting um, and a, and a cognitive stimulant, not, not a stimulant like, like caffeine, um, you know, where you're overstimulated or a physical stimulant, but a cognitive stimulant. So this is another 
I, I call these urban legends because <laughs> we don't really, you know, we don't know, we don't have data on this, but I have, you know, people saying they want to use CBD for sleep. And I think that's just a bad idea <laughs> because it, it can be alerting. And it really, what the literature shows is, is what we call biphasic effects where at, a, at lower doses, CBD is alerting, and as you go up in dose, it can be more sedating, but we're talking now in the hundreds of milligrams, and so most people can't afford, you know, five to 20 cents a milligram, hundreds of milligrams per day. Mm -hmm. Now, if CBD is cognitive stimulating, would that make it uh, beneficial for a condition like Alzheimer's? Uh, potentially, uh, you know, it hasn't been tried, so we don't know. This was a this effect of being a cognitive stimulant is something that uh, was really evident in the young pediatric patients with epilepsy, and um, so you know, when they're young, we think that CBD maybe it was turning on genes that may have not gotten turned on or. You know, it had some effect whereby kids were just, they seemed to, what parents said, come alive, where they felt like for the first time, you know, when they looked into their child's eyes, someone was really there, or the child started speaking, Mm -hmm. or the the child had improvement with motor skills, fine and gross motor skills. And we don't know if this carries over into elderly or, you know, very old people, particularly with dementia or Alzheimer's, if there can be some restoration, it could just be an effect of it being an antioxidant. And we know that antioxidants can be, you know, good for the brain and good for cognition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is there any um, evidence of their affecting um, the amyloid plaques that are found in the brains of Alzheimer's patients? Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen that data on CBD. That, that data has been published about THC, not in humans yet, but definitely in animals, mm-hmm. but there may be an effect. Mm-hmm. I interviewed um, a Canadian doctor a few uh, weeks ago who is working on mice uh, with arthritis, and he is finding actual regeneration of the myelin sheath in um, uh, with the uh, application of cannabinoids. So there is so much research to be done. We're really... Yeah, we have so much basic science research. You know, when you're saying that, I remember, you know, the type of cell that makes the myelin sheath is called an oligodendrocyte. And I mean, probably 10 years ago, I remember reading that CBD, you know, stimulated these oligodendrocytes. So it was something we were thinking about with our patients with multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. You know, but even though we can measure that in an animal because we can sacrifice the animals and look at it and measure it, but you know, we can't do that. There might that be a little humans. resistance. <laughs> we can't just go get a sample of their myelin sheath and <laughs> find that out. <laughs> and, you know, in a condition, in many of these conditions, they're slow degenerative conditions. And, you know, it's, it's unlikely unless it's like, you know, cancer. The earlier you catch it, the more likely you are going to be able to treat it or, or slow the progression. So with Parkinson's, for instance, 
you know, we, we don't have a cure. We don't, we don't know the cause. Same with multiple sclerosis. They're, they're, the etiologies of five people are five different etiologies, but their symptom set is all the same. And we know that there are certain things that can slow the, pro the progression of the disease. So, you know, if cannabis can even be one of those things that could slow progression, it's going to increase the quality of life for that patient. Absolutely. And it, you know, and it, it's, it's harmless otherwise, really. And, you know, when, when used wisely and in proper dosing, um, it doesn't harm people. It, it's not toxic. You can't die from an overdose. And so why not extend it to suffering human beings, you know, on any level that they're experiencing suffering? Indeed. The Schedule 1 uh, classification is very... Um, confounding on many levels. Uh, one of the reasons that I initially contacted you was that I read about a case, I believe it was in Washington State, no, in Oregon, of somebody who had been fired from his position as a bus driver um, because he was found in a urine test to be positive for uh, cannabinoids, even though he only took CBD and nothing uh, overtly containing THC. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's, I mean, that's the conundrum is that even hemp, you know, can have a 0.3 THC content. And, you know, if you're using it all day long, every day for months, um, you know, it's like any, uh, Anything else in the environment, there's, there's accumulation over time. So there's a, a bioaccumulation in the body, and, and these compounds love the fat. And so they're just going to hang out in the fat, and they can get re-released from the fat into the bloodstream. So it was unfortunate for him, you know, that even though the lab said it was undetectable amount of THC, we don't know what that means exactly. Uh, there's not one standard for laboratories to say you must meet this detection limit. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, and there, there's human error that, that can occur in a laboratory. That's why when we do scientific experience, we do many, many replicates to make sure, <laughs> you know, that this is the number. And when you have a cannabis product go into a lab, they run it through the instrument one time. So I, I used to own a lab and we, you know, we had... Uh, instances where a human error provided a, a very wrong report on a product. Sure. I mean, just doing, doing numbers, you know, if you're doing your, we're coming up to tax season now, trying to get the same result when you add up a column of figures several <laughs> times. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, the cannabis industry is still very young. What do you think are its most urgent challenges? Urgent challenges of the cannabis industry. Um, well, I mean, my perspective, of course, is the medicinal piece. Um, because, yeah, I'm finding, you know, in this transitional market in California right now, um, products are disappearing because there's products that have been available that people have been using. And now the manufacturer lives in a municipality that has a moratorium and they can't get a local license and therefore they can't get a state license. And so, you know, same thing of what I saw happen in Washington state that 
the medical patients are really getting thrown under the bus. And, you know, they're, they're the ones that are gaining so much benefit from, from access to this. But if, if we can't access product that is rational and reasonable for them, what's the point? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't see a really strong effort being made to ensure that these products stay around. And, and that didn't happen in Washington. It all just, everybody converted to a recreational mindset and that was all about high THC content. And so, for instance, patients that were accessing, um, you know, very high CBD content for seizure and epilepsy, suddenly, you know, the market where they had bought that was gone and to go into the existing retail market, that product no longer existed. And so they're really forced into the black market. Hmm. And a patient shouldn't have to be there. The, the patient, I think the patient should be uh, front and center, but they're not. No, and they have not been for many decades. I mean, if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, a lot of products have left the market because they're not sufficiently profitable for the drug companies. Yeah, and, you know, Patients are the whole reason that any of these markets uh, exist today. <laughs> you know, it was, it was uh, legalization by the states for medical use that, that brought us to this massive industry that's developing now. And it's really focused on the recreational user. Uh, and, you know, I, I say that um, because I had gone out and visited the licensed dispensaries and often they don't have much of any product selection for patients that are looking to not be stoned. They just want some relief and all they need is a low dose and it's just not there for them. When you say a low dose, you're talking about the proportion of THC to CBD. Um, well, I mean, it could be the proportion, but I'm, I'm talking about literally milligram doses when, uh -huh. when it comes mm -hmm. to THC. Mm-hmm. So. And the ability to, to be able to take a small dose or a microdose like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the rules are, you know, you can have 10 milligrams of THC per individual serving of something. And so nobody's going to make a, a two milligram one. If you can have 10, they're going to put all of it in there. And, oh, see. Mm -hmm. you know, those products may not be able to be cut into even portions or that's, that's a problem that I have with the capsules. You can't do a, a slow upward, you know, dose titration. And some patients are really, really sensitive and they really need to be able to take four doses for these first four days. And then, I mean, eight, four drops and then eight drops and then 10 or, you know, to be able to adjust it to their tolerance. People are people are still scared a lot and um, you know, they don't want to have a bad experience and I don't want them to have a bad experience. Sure. Now as a doctor uh, in uh, an integrative practice where you have the whole panoply of um, medical remedies available to you, um, how big does the ability to to recommend cannabis loom in terms of the overall picture of what you can, how you can service your patients? Um, well, 
for me? I mean, because I'm not supposed to recommend it to, to a patient here in California. Um, you know, the patients coming to me are coming often on referral from their medical doctor who has recommended it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I see it as another herb. I've been studying herbs since I was about 17 years old. Um, and herbs are around and in use because humans use them. We were able to differentiate the ones that were harmful from the ones that were not. We were even able to differentiate dosing that we could, there were the harmful ones, maybe we could use them at lower dose, but they had a narrow therapeutic window. And, you know, cannabis is one of these that it may have a narrow therapeutic window, but now with the ability to see what's there in an individual product, we, we have the ability to use it really safely and effectively. And, you know, from the perspective of my patient population, I mean, I, I couldn't reproduce the benefit that they're getting um, if, if I had to leave it out of my formulary. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I hope that, that things continue to evolve where, you know, we can access it as an herbal medicine. Well, uh, I suppose that as the basic science gets done, more and more doctors will feel more comfortable in not only um, demanding its uh, rescheduling, but also in recommending it to their patients. Yeah, and I think what's really highlighting that right now, you know, is what's going on with um, opiate um, prescription abuse, uh, overuse of opiates for pain, and, you know, now seeing that there's this desperate need to reverse that. We don't want to go down any similar road with cannabis, certainly, but I think that this is a platform that's opening um, the eyes of many doctors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think cannabis can be effective in opiate withdrawal? Um, well, I'm glad you asked that question because that has really been what I've been working on. Um, I'm, I'm now faculty at the University of California, San Diego in the Department of Anesthesiology. And we are in the process of a chart review of around 200 patients that we've shared together uh, that were specifically referred to me from the pain department uh, for the purpose of using cannabis to withdraw them off of opiates. And so our observation is that it is effective and useful and enabling people to either totally eliminate or reduce their opioid use. Um, this is going to be highlighted on a uh, Sanjay Gupta Weed 4 on CNN coming up in April where Dr. Wallace and myself and one of our patients uh, was interviewed about the process that we use. So we hope to be able to write these results up pretty soon and publish them and show that, uh, you know, this collaborative arrangement with a medical team, a naturopathic doctor, and community-sourced cannabis um, is a solution. That is so exciting to hear, and congratulations. I look forward to uh, hearing this TV special. Yeah, thank you. We're very excited about it. Do you have any other books or studies uh, ready to be published? Uh, We're working on um, some interesting data from our survey where we asked, um, you know, the responders to the survey, what are the acute 
uh, effects of cannabis that you experience. And then we gave them a list of 41 to select mm -hmm. and um, finding that um, there's differential effects uh, between recreational users or medical users. And there's also differential effects between younger users and older users. So uh, interestingly, the majority of users found it to be um, something that was motivating, which sort of contra contradicts this long-held belief uh, that cannabis causes a motivational, a motivational syndrome or anti-motivational syndrome. Um, and that older people using cannabis uh, did not report significant impairment in cognitive function or short-term short memory loss. <laughs> so this is something that older people are often worried about, that mm -hmm. they, they may already be experiencing it to a level, um, and it's not exacerbated by the cannabis. So, mm -hmm. so if somebody wants to uh, join that survey, can they still do so? Oh, yeah. Yeah, anybody can still fill it out. We've translated it into um, three other languages, so... We're still collecting data, and we, we go in um, every few years and revise it, uh, update it to try to reflect what's going on in the real world so that uh, the questions we're answering and the, uh, the questions we're asking and the answers that we get are relative. So um, what is the website they would go to? Um, oh, I don't know if I can quote the whole website, but if but you just do a search for cannabis use survey uh it should come up um a link I, at bestier university um i think i found it at cannabissurvey.org okay yeah that's the quick and dirty one then <laughs> <laughs> that's the direct route <laughs> yeah <Not past go. laughs> yeah so we invite any cannabis users uh whether medicinal users Mixed users, whether you use it both medicinally and recreationally or just recreationally to participate. Do you list any of the results on that website? Um, I don't know that our results are on there. They probably should, it probably should be updated to have all of our papers available that we've published. Um, I warmly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> Well, that uh, kind of brings us to the end of our time together. I really enjoyed speaking with you. We've been speaking with Dr. Michelle Sexton, ND. And um, do you have your own website? I do. It's msextonnd.com. That's N for naturopath, D for doctor. Correct. Correct. Well, thank you so much again for being with us. All right. Thank you so much for having me today. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for Cannabis in Focus at CannabisInFocus.com. Goodbye.